0: I confess, I had my first orgasm at 12, in a swimming pool, pressed up against a water jet, in front of my entire family.
1: They had no idea. You think? I confess, my favorite kind of role-playing is unconventional, like an elderly married British couple. I confess. The first time I had sex
0: with my lover, he came within five minutes. I made up my mind to never have sex with him again. But he begged me to give him one more chance, and I made him promise to do right by me. Ten years later, our sessions can last up to five hours. Patience and persistence is a virtue.
1: Yes, it is. I confess, the sound of other people fucking is a huge turn on. Sometimes when I'm watching porn, I close my eyes and just listen to the sounds they're making. When the men groan, I get so wet. The sound of a real orgasm from a woman is the best way to get me off quickly. Welcome to Bed Post Confessions.
0: Almost everybody does it, and almost nobody talks about it, except at Bedpost Confessions, a storytelling show based in Austin, Texas. Whether the stories are funny, informative, political, or completely personal, the anonymous confessions from the audience are the stars of every show. Welcome to the Bedpost Confessions podcast. I'm Bedpost producer Sadie Smythe Redpost is a community, and we know right now a lot of us are facing difficult times. So we hope this episode can bring some normalcy and escapism. We also want to spotlight some of our partners who could use a little help right now. Just Jill Cosmetics is offering 50% off their cosmetics line, and Mary J. Smoke Culture has their online store up and running for all your CBD needs. Links to these online stores and other ways to support our performers, bar staff, and other members of our community in need are in the show notes. This week, we are thrilled to share Ariel Sokol Ward's story. Ariel finds powerful and unapologetic self-love by way of grief and metanoia. Ariel Sokol Ward is a licensed social worker who believes that we can find our power in trauma. The experiences that drown us are often the same ones that help us fly. One more note before we hear Ariel's story. All Bedpost storytelling productions are made accessible to deaf audience members by the fantastic interpreters from Soul Illumination. Though the interpreters are there to serve the deaf, they enthrall the entire crowd with their beautiful expressions of American Sign Language. If you hear a roar of laughter and don't understand why, the interpreter may have stolen the show for a minute.
2: On with the show. I told him to strip to his boxers. I sat him in his chair, blindfolded him, and tied his arms behind his body. I set up my playlist, which included Rihanna, John Legend, and even Smashing Pumpkins. I told him to wiggle his blindfold off, and I performed a strip tease that led to a lap dance and resulted in passionate animalistic sex. As we lay in bed catching our breath, I tell him my confession. I just recorded the entire thing. (laughs) Drew asks, Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. Holy shit, can we watch it? (laughs) Our sex life was passionate, experimental, and loving. We were open with each other about our desires and fantasies, and I trusted him with my body, my heart, my future, with my life. He trusted heroin. We lived in Baltimore where heroin is a second currency. Drew was in recovery and had slipped in the past, but things were different. He had a family who supported him, friends who adored him, a bed to sleep in, and a partner who was crazy in love with him. Then I get a phone call, and everything in my life shatters. As a mental health professional, I believe that addiction is truly a disease and stronger than anything I could imagine. But how does something I never touched take away everything I love in a second? On the morning of March 6, 2015, Drew overdosed on heroin and died. He was 24. Drew was someone that quoted lines from movies, obsessed over Dragon Ball Z, and shamelessly watch Gossip Girl. (laughs) He would want me to tell you how shreddy he was, a term he used for his perfectly sculpted body. He loved strawberry milkshakes, especially the ones from the Cheesecake Factory. He was studying to be an engineer. We rarely called each other by our names and instead referred to each other as Babe. We would say the word Babe, and weird voices, just to make the other person laugh. Sometimes I would catch Drew staring at me, maybe it was after sex, or over a milkshake, or in the bed section of Bed Bath & Beyond. (laughs) When I would notice, I would say, what are you looking at? And he would always respond, you are so beautiful. I told him once I hope I never got used to him telling me that, and I didn't. And since his death, I've watched that video we made in full one time, just to see his face, his body, our bodies together. Drew and I would talk about marriage, children, our home, our future, but those conversations get lost in a fog of grief. You might be familiar. Have you ever really had an honest conversation about what that grief is? I'll start. My grief felt like what I imagine drowning feels like. The thing is, though, it's not as quick. And you have your friends and your family reaching their arms out as far as they are able to, but not quite far enough to pull you out of the water. My grief manifests to physical pain that must be real because it feels like my heart has just been ripped from my body and someone put a sandbag on me and I can't get up. Or move. Or breathe. Or breathe. I'm bleeding out. My grief is waking up in the middle of the night from a hell like night terror, only to remember that the hell actually starts when I open my eyes. I scream and I cry and I rock myself back and forth, saying, You're okay, you're safe. You're okay, you're safe. Am I? My grief is bargaining with God, who I'm sure at this point doesn't exist, because why would she let this happen? Saying that I would give up years of my life just so I could have 10 more minutes with him. My grief is listening to friends say things like, if my boyfriend died, I think I would die too. I laugh. I say to them, you think you would, and you would welcome death. Wish it, even. But no. Instead, you will sit in this grief that is so consuming, you are surprised it doesn't kill you. And if you're lucky enough, you survive. Some days with your head barely above water, but eventually you find bottom and kick yourself back up and swim for your fucking life. Shortly after his death, I began writing letters to him. Thursday, July 23, 2015, Dear Drew, I have this apathetic look to life now. No sleeping, barely eating, never hungry or craving food. I miss feeling colorful. I don't know if or when I will get the color back in my life, or if I want it back, if you won't be in it. For months following Drew's death, I thought there was no way I would ever be with someone else. How could I? How could I betray Drew like that? And besides, what would people say? She doesn't love him. She doesn't miss him. Oh, she moved on fast. The thought of someone else laying next to me in bed for years didn't only seem impossible and wrong. It made me want to throw up. I truly felt like I did not deserve love. I did not deserve happiness. I could never accept love from anyone else because how could I do that to Drew? I'd have to learn my life the way it was now, always missing a piece. In therapy one day, in a panic actually, I realized I would find someone else. And that would mean that they would take the title of boyfriend or lover or best friend. This was terrifying to me. About two weeks after Drew died, I spoke to his AA sponsor. Because in my mind, this was the person who knew all of Drew's secrets. He could have answers for me. Instead of finding comfort or even clues, he told me lies and tried to sleep with me. Two weeks. Fuck that guy. That's when the careless sex began. When I would crave someone, I knew it was just the feeling of closeness I was searching for that I had with Drew. Because the truth is, to this day, I have never come from sex, head, or anything besides my 1960s forearm of a vibrator 10 out of 10 would recommend, ladies. Ladies. And because no man or woman has ever made me come, you better believe I let them know that when they are finished. Faking orgasms, in my opinion, is strictly for the other person. And if the other person's gonna come and I'm not, they don't need anything extra, like thinking they did better than they actually did. I started sleeping with people I normally wouldn't because a part of me wanted to stay numb, a part of me wants to get back at Drew. And a part of me didn't have the respect for myself that I used to. I would compromise my body because I was drastically out of touch with my soul. And I am someone that has electrifying love and respect for her body and being. But my depression took the form of apathy for my body and being. And for that, I'm still trying to forgive myself. At the end of the day, no matter who I was laying with, it wasn't Drew... And that's all that mattered. I was filled with loneliness and it wasn't getting better. But what did I think was going to happen? Never be with someone again? Never feel the physical intimacy or even the love that can bloom in a relationship? Do I wait until my grief is over? If that was the case, I may as well take a seat because this is going to be a lifetime of waiting. But... Drew would want me to be happy. Because he knows when I love, I love with everything in me. I love unapologetically, vulnerably, bravely. But after losing such a big part of your life, your future, a part of you, how do you move on? You cut yourself some slack. You forgive yourself for not knowing what you didn't know before you learned it, and you tell yourself that you will have a lot of shitty days, but over time they will become less frequent and less debilitating. You surround yourself with people who show up for you and only the people who show up for you. You are resilient because there isn't another choice, and you are good to yourself in every way possible. For me, being good to myself included a drastic change in scenery. I booked a ticket to New Zealand and went on a solo backpacking trip for six weeks. I'd never traveled that far alone before, so I was excited, but as soon as that plane landed, I thought, oh shit. I traveled both islands, met incredible people, and saw nature in a way I didn't think ever really existed. I met men and women I was attracted to, slept with, and felt things for in the moment. I was on a mission to find what I was looking for, though I had no idea what that was. It wasn't until I got to the city of Christchurch that I started to understand why I went on this trip. August 2nd, 2015. Dear Drew, I am in dying need for real human connection, to make a difference, and to experience life. I am scared to death of just existing, and that's what I feel like I'm doing now. I want to tell people that they have to do more than just exist. Your life depends on it. Embrace fear and vulnerability and wholeheartedness. While sitting in a hostel cafe, figuring out my next city and bus route, I met Shane. Shane was a successful 43-year-old, divorced father of three, on a sabbatical from his life as well. We started talking, and after about two hours of spilling our souls, I decided he was interesting enough to go grab some dinner. Over the next week, I would fall in love with him, and loving him would help me heal. I finally let myself be vulnerable, and even our first night of traveling together, I let him hold me, touch me, and for the first time since Drew allow him to see me for who I was, cracked, heartbroken, lonely. Through letting another human being in, my heart started to repair because he wasn't afraid of the broken pieces and showed me I could become powerful in my grief. He held my joy and my grief with comfort and care, and I found hope for myself, which previously had been a foreign concept for so long. And I learned this. Giving and accepting love and intimacy from someone does not mean I have forgotten about Drew. I leaned into the pain of loss and came out a stronger, loving, resilient, and more grateful person. That is the person I am proud to be today. February 20th, 2017. Dear Drew, I wish she could see my life now, see how happy I am and how well I'm doing. I moved to Austin. I live in fucking Texas. Can you believe that shit? (laughs) The truth is, though, I love it. My life is great and better than I ever could have imagined even a year ago. I feel very lucky, and after such a long time, I am finally very happy.
0: I confess that I want to live with my girlfriend, her fiance, my husband, and our two kids in a
1: massive house of love. I have the counter to that confession. Of course (laughs) There's so many options I confess I love monogamy Now more than ever (laughs) Me too actually
0: Uh, I confess I make all new Potential boyfriends Come to bedposts with me It's a screening tool (laughs) Yes They don't like it Next Yeah I'm here single tonight. (laughs) Never picked up someone at bedposts yet.
1: All right. I confess that kissing is more intimate to me than sex. I'll happily jump in the center of an orgy, and I have several times. But these lips only kiss those. That is what I truly love and trust.
0: Bedpost Confessions is recorded in front of a live audience at the North Door in Austin, Texas. To support the show, consider purchasing an I Confess t-shirt, tote, or journal, all available at bedpostconfessions.com. Follow Bedpost Confessions on Instagram with a new form and Facebook for more audience confessions and up-to-date information on our live performances. Links to Ariel's work along with her TEDx talk on grief and, of course, all things Bedpost Confessions are in the show notes. Webhost confessions is produced by myself sadie smythe and miranda wiley our podcast production team is mariah gossett mike moody and permanent record studios also help us continue to grow the podcast by leaving us a little five-star review on apple podcast and maybe include a confession or two if you'd like until next time keep confessing